This is the Adventist World Radio, and you are listening to the Voice of Hope. For more information, please feel free to write to us. Our email address is Bible at awr dot org, or you could also call us on WhatsApp at plus one two two four two 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 zero seven seven seven. Hello and welcome to WaveScan, the international DX program from Adventist World Radio, researched and written in Indianapolis by Dr. Adrian Peterson, and produced in the studios of WRMI Shortwave in Okeechobee, Florida. I'm Jeff White. This is edition NWS 753 for release on Sunday, July 30th, 2023. On WaveScan today. American radio call signs, the girl whose initials matched the local radio station. More of Jonathan Marks's interview with Dr. Graham Mitten of the BBC World Service Audience Research, and our Indian DX report. At the turn of the century, 1900, 123 years ago, over-the-air communication was very young, and as new wireless stations sprang up, operators and their owners chose at random a small group of letters in the English language as an identification for their stations. Here's Ray Robinson now with people honored by radio call signs. Thanks, Jeff. At the 1906 wireless convention in Berlin, each major geographic area of the world was allotted a letter of the alphabet as the first letter of a wireless station call sign. Then, at the 1912 wireless convention in London, numbers were allotted to identify regional areas within each major geographic area of the world. And then on October the 1st, 1918, the United States implemented the combined usage of letters and numbers for shortwave radio call signs. And thus, for example, W8XK identified the shortwave station for the counterpart medium wave station KDKA in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Now, during the early era of radio broadcasting in the United States, 100 years ago in the 1920s, the allotted call signs that identified each separate radio broadcasting station were issued consecutively according to the available range of alphabetic letters. At that initial period, no radio station call sign contained any meaningful reference to ownership, location or organisation whatsoever. For example, the call sign of the Westinghouse radio station in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, KDKA, with its 100 watts on 545 kHz, contained no specific information. The four letters, KDKA, were issued by the Department of Commerce in Washington, D.C. in 1920, and they were allotted as the next available block of four letters in that particular alphabetic sequence. However, quite early, radio personnel in the United States began to realise the value in choosing a call sign that contained a significant meaning. 
The available information would indicate that the very first radio broadcasting call sign in the United States that contained a realistic meaning was issued to the Post-Dispatch newspaper in St. Louis, Missouri in 1922. Their 20-watt station on 550 kHz was launched on March 9, 1922, and it was granted the call sign KSD, with the letter K indicating the western area of the United States, the letter S indicating St. Louis, and the letter D indicating the dispatch newspaper. In that very same month, March 1922, a new radio station in Detroit, Michigan, was issued the very appropriate letters KOP to identify colloquially that the station was owned and operated by the city police department. (laughs) Station KOP, or COP, with 500 watts on 1050 kilohertz, was licensed to broadcast entertainment programming in between official police announcements. Other call signs during that era that identified organizational ownership were WCAP in Washington, D.C. that was owned by the Chesapeake and Potomac Telephone Company, WNYC that was owned by the City of New York, and KGO that identified General Electric at Oakland, California. Call sign WREO identified both the owner of the station and also the motor vehicles that his company manufactured. 33-year-old Ransom E. Olds established the Oldsmobile Car Factory in Lansing, Michigan in 1897, and two years later he sold the company to a private investor. And then six years later, in 1905, Olds formed a new motor vehicle factory, still in the same city, Lansing, this time with the name REO, indicating Ransom E. Olds. Twenty years later, in 1925, Ransom Olds launched a radio broadcasting station with 500 watts on 1050 kilohertz with a very effective call sign WREO as an aid in the marketing of his motor vehicles. The call sign WCBK in Martinsville, Indiana with 250 watts on 1540 kilohertz honoured the owner's father, Clements Bruce Keister, CBK and KATH-TV in Juneau, Alaska, honoured the owner's wife, Kath. However, in 1969, Mal Belairs of WBBM in Chicago bought the four-year-old station WCLR, which was a daytimer with 500 watts at Crystal Lake, Illinois, and changed the call sign from WCLR to WIVS. The new call sign, WIVS, honoured the wives of the two ownership men, as well as the intended programming appeal. Medium wave, KLBJ in Austin, Texas, honoured the station owner, the subsequent President Lyndon B. Johnson. A medium wave, WJFK in Manassas, Virginia, honoured the name of the late President, John F. Kennedy. There was a KFUN with 1 kilowatt on 1530 kHz in Las Vegas, New Mexico, and a WFUN-FM on 96.3 MHz in St. Louis, Missouri. And then there was a KADY television station in Oxnard, California, and that was the name of the owner's daughter, Katie. And as another fun call sign, there was a television station in Grand Rapids, Michigan, that was given the call sign WZZM, which was chosen because it looked the same even when it was turned upside down. (laughs) Well, thus far in our programme today, we've looked at American radio and TV stations that were granted call signs that honoured specific people. 
However, as a reverse situation, we present the story of a girl whose given names provided the same initials as the call sign of a local radio broadcasting station. This is the story of the WNAC girl at Marblehead in Massachusetts. Radio station WNAC first launched in July 1922 and used several different frequencies before settling on 1230 kilocycles a few years later. In 1927, it became one of the 16 charter members of the CBS radio network serving the Boston market. Well, one of the station's fans from the Cat's Whisker days in the early 20s decided when his daughter was born in August 1926 to name her after the station. And thus she became Winifred Norma Althea Chamberlain, whose initials, WNAC, were then identical to the call letters of the station. Fourteen years later, in August 1940, Winifred was interviewed on the station and she was honoured as their Miss WNAC without contest. (laughs) Of course, all this happened in the United States, but over in Europe there was also a tradition both of naming stations after people and the reverse, people after stations. In the 1970s, several of the offshore stations broadcast from vessels named after people – including Radio Atlantis, which broadcasts from the MV Janine, named after the wife of the station's Belgian owner, Adrian van Lanschoot. The famous stations Radio Caroline off the British coast and Radio Veronica off the Dutch coast had millions of loyal fans, and quite a number of girls born in the 60s and 70s in the UK or the Netherlands were called either Caroline or Veronica in honour of those stations. One such girl, Caroline Martin, later became a presenter herself on Radio Caroline from 1986 to 1990, before going on to have a successful broadcasting career in land-based radio. Well, it's back to you, Jeff, and I'll leave you with a clip of Caroline Martin broadcasting on Caroline 558 from the MV Ross Revenge in International Waters in January 1990. Della Sol, and I know... Quarter to twelve, say hello to my dad and Mandy now. Chose this one specially for you, Dad. Have a happy new year, and I love you. It's Brian Adams from the album Reckless and Heaven. Aha, uh-huh, from back in 1985, Take On Me. I used to love the video to that song, it was absolutely marvellous. Caroline 558, it's eight minutes in front of one o'clock. Dave Asher will have the news for you at one. First, this is McFadden and Whitehead, and there ain't no stopping us now. Band Aid 2, let them know it's Christmas time. Thanks to Dave for the news at one o'clock. Caroline Martin, I'm here with you until two. This is Led Zeppelin now, and a whole lot of love. Thank you, Ray Robinson, at Voice of Hope in Los Angeles. We mentioned last week that the National Association of Shortwave Broadcasters has a new associate member, Encompass Digital Media in the UK. Privately owned shortwave stations in the United States that are licensed by the Federal Communications Commission can be full voting members of the NASB, but any organization worldwide can be an associate member. Other associate members of the NASB include Broadcast Belgium, Continental Electronics Corporation, Galcom International in Canada, Hatfield and Dawson Consulting Engineers, the United States Agency for Global Media, and Télédiffusion de France. We should also remind you that anyone with an interest in shortwave radio is welcome to take part in the 2023 NASB annual meeting. 
This year, the meeting will be on board a cruise ship traveling from Miami, Florida to Ocean Key in the Bahamas on December 1st to the 4th. There's a meeting room on the ship, and participants will also have the opportunity to visit the Bahamian island of Ocean Key on one day of the excursion. And again, all shortwave listeners are very welcome to come along. The price is $229 per person, plus $75 port taxes in a double-occupancy private cabin. You can find all of the details on the NASB webpage at www.shortwave.org. That's www.shortwave.org. Then click on Annual Meeting Info. Two weeks ago on this program, we had the first part of an interview with Dr. Graham Mitten former head of BBC World Service Audience Research. The interview was conducted by Jonathan Marks, host of the former Radio Netherlands program, Media Network. We're going to pick up today where we left off two weeks ago. Graham Mitten was talking about the development of non-BBC radio stations in colonial Africa. So you, you talk about um, um, these first uh, radio stations being set up in northern Rhodesia. How did... Uh, um, how did London react to what they were seeing? You know, I don't know. I've looked in the archives, in the BBC's archives, and also in the writ- public written archives at Kew, and I've found no reference of that kind. I would love to know. It, it is true that it is possible that some of this filtered through in the colonial department, because the colonial department, after uh, the war, did have a fund for the development of broadcasting. And there's a very well-known man who was who was much involved in that, Tom Chalmers. Tom Chalmers went to develop broadcasting in Nigeria, in Nyasaland, in, Tanz- in Tanganyika, as it then was, and also to some extent in Kenya. Tom Chalmers really deserves a biography to be written just about him because he was a huge influence. He went on to be the director general of what was then the Tanganyika Broadcasting Corporation. And he was responsible for the training of people because broadcasting really didn't start in Tanganyika until the early 60s. No, no, sorry, the the 50s. But it was quite late, much later than in northern Rhodesia. And so Tom Jarmus really created Tanganyika's broadcasting radio. With a man, with an African guy called Martin Kiama and another one called Stephen Latier and an engineer called Ignatius Muhimbira, the three, the four of them were were the really created the radio in Tanzania, and they are remembered today. And by the way, uh, they are referred to in Alastair Milne, the former director general of the BBC. He actually refers to Ignatius Muhimbira not by name, but by saying this extraordinary engineer in Tanzania was capable of repairing almost anything and showed me that he could and you can see the passage in in um in and he's referring to ignatius who was who was a good friend of mine um ignatius who had who had that amazing skill to repair and mend and make things work because uh, you're miles away from the manufacturers and you don't have uh, you know you haven't got a corner shop where they'll repair microphones or whatever ignatius learned how to mend things so that, that was another thing that I remember from that. And was most, bearing in mind the, the, the size of these countries, was most of this shortwave radio? Yes, you see, that's the other thing that nobody realised, and the BBC didn't realise. Nobody, nobody thought about it. The, the colonial government in Dar es Salaam and the same situation in Nigeria, in Kenya, 
And in the French territories, it was the same. You had huge countries with few exceptions. There were a few small colonies where you could use medium wave and get to everybody, but very few. Most African countries are huge. And they, the only way of covering a whole country without spending vast amounts of money on lots and lots of repeater transmitters, so you could reach the whole of Tan Tanganyika from one transmitter. How are we going to do it? Well, there's only one way of doing it, and that's shortwave. So you had a situation in Africa. There were, you know, how many African independent countries? I can't remember now. There are now 54. But in those days, after 1960s period of independence, there were about 30, 35 that were fully independent of Europe in the, in the early 60s. Every single one of them inherited a broadcasting system dependent entirely on shortwave. The thing was that shortwave was the main spine of all radio broadcasting in Africa, with no exceptions except possibly South Africa. They did start investing in FM fairly early on. But that was for political reasons. That was for political reasons to stop them listening to Moscow or Cairo or BBC or whatever. But what happened was, and it was greatly to the BBC's benefit, if you like, that the BBC was broadcasting on shortwave because shortwave is the only way of doing international radio seriously in those days. Shortwave was how you reached long distances. But it was also the only way of covering national audiences in most African countries. And by the way, the great pioneer of shortwave for domestic purposes was the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union could not have reached its population during the development of radio in in Russia, Soviet Union, in the 1920s and 30s without shortwave. It was the only way to reach, you know, right across nine time zones or however many there are, nine, I think. You could, couldn't do it any other way. You couldn't reach your... I mean, and the Communist Party relied on it to reach it, it, and to send instructions and policies and all that kind of thing to the cadres right out in, you know, Vladivostok or Novosibirsk or wherever it was. So shortwave was, was developed in many countries for domestic broadcasting, and that is often forgotten, especially by hobbyists in the United States. They think it's all about long distance. It is about long distance, but they think it's all about, you know, um, international. It isn't. It's, it's national. The, the, the main use of shortwave during the development of radio, especially in the, fifth, in the 60s and 70s, was as a domestic medium. And so all the shortwave international broadcasters benefited from that because they had a, an audience already there. People were familiar with shortwave radios. They knew, how, know, they knew how to use them. They knew you had to turn them around. You had to move the aerial. You had to twiddle the knobs and do all this kind of stuff. And they, African listeners learned those tricks very quickly and very well. And they would get bored, perhaps, with something not very good on some propaganda coming from the government or some boring commentator saying, what a wonderful leader we've got and all that kind of stuff. And they'd twiddle the knobs and find something else. They'd find the BBC or Radio Netherlands or Deutsche Welle or Radio Moscow. They didn't listen to Radio Moscow very much because it could be just as boring as the domestic radio full of propaganda and that kind of stuff. But so, Radio Moscow did use uh, quite a lot of uh, local languages. I used plenty. I, I used to, t after the fall of that, i tell you a story now. The, we, we, as you know, my department at the BBC measured audiences all over the world. And you know where our biggest audiences for Radio Moscow ever were found? Where Radio Moscow used local languages. So the biggest ever was when we did a survey in Mali, 
Mali, it, uh, the, the Radio Moscow broadcast in Bambara. Bam, and the Bambara audience for Radio Moscow was bigger than the BBC's audience in French, you see. I said, tell her. And then I used to tease my, my counterparts at, at Radio Moscow, say, you close it because they closed them down. After the fall of, you know, communism, they closed all these odd little languages, as they called them. They closed them down. I said, why is it Radio Moscow closes down all its really popular services? And they, they thought that was very funny. But it's true. And also they broadcast in several Indian languages, and those had quite good audiences in some parts of, it, in some parts of India. There we are. That was Dr. Graham Mitten, former head of audience research at the BBC World Service, speaking with Jonathan Marks on his media network Vintage Vault, which is available on the Internet. We'll continue with his interview with Graham Mitten on an upcoming edition of WaveScan. Right now, though, let's go to Prithwaraj Pukayasta for our Indian DX report. Namaskar and hello, friends. I am Prithviraj Pukayasta, VU3TQD, reporting for the WaveScan from Jorhat in the northeastern state of Assam in India. Let's begin with some news from the radio world. National Broadcasting Day was observed in India on 23rd July. The day aims to remind Indian citizens about the impact of radio on our lives. On July 23, 1927, the Indian Broadcasting Company came into existence and the first radio broadcast in the country went on air from Bombay station of IBC. However, the company faced liquidation in less than three years. Soon after this, all India Radio, that is AIR, came into being in April 1930 as the Indian Broadcasting Service. On June 8, it was renamed as All India Radio. Of the late, many changes have been noted in the broadcasting of Akashwani regional stations all over the country. Some regional FM channels are noted carrying only primary channel programs. Meanwhile, few stations have also introduced round-the-clock transmissions on their respective FM frequencies. Radio Thailand has announced its new broadcast frequencies which are in effect from 1st July. The English language broadcast of Radio Thailand World Service can be heard on 13750 kHz from 0 hour UTC to 0030 UTC and 2 hour UTC to 230 UTC on 17640 kHz between 5 to 530 UTC, on 9940 kHz between 12 to 1230 and 1330 to 14 hour UTC, and on 7475 kHz between 18 to 1830 UTC and 1830 to 1930 UTC. Reception reports for Radio Thailand can be sent to RTH World at the rate gmail.com that is rth world service at gmail.com and here are some of my latest monitoring updates on international broadcasters sri lanka broadcasting corporation is coming with good signal on 11905 kHz between 022 0 to 30 hour utc Radio Romania International in English was heard on 17790 kHz between 03 to 04 hour UTC, SINPO 35333. MWV in English was heard on 
13760 kilohertz between 03 to 0330 UTC with nice to fair reception. Radio Filipinas in English was received here in my QTH on 17820 kilohertz with SINPO rating 45444. Radio Taiwan International in English was received with SINPO 34323 between 03 to 04 hour UTC on 15320 kHz. KBS World Radio in English was received with SINPO 43223 CRI English was logged on 9870 kHz at 13345 UTC. 13-hour-UTC-with-sinpo-all-five. From 14 hour UTC with SINPO 35233. And friends, with this, I would like to conclude this edition of Indian DX report on WebScan. I hope the information will be beneficial to you. If you have any comment and suggestion on this DX capsule or want to send me a reception report, then please write to me at IndianDXReport at the rate gmail.com. That is indiandxreport at gmail.com. So until next time, stay safe with your loved ones. Bye-bye and 73 is for Masa. Thanks for listening to WaveScan, the international DX program from Adventist World Radio. Researched and written in Indianapolis by Adrian Peterson. Next week, the BBC relay station in Singapore has been closed. And our Japan DX report from Yukiko Tsuji. WaveScan is heard weekly on KSDA in Guam, AWR relays in various locations, WRMI in Florida, WWCR in Tennessee, Voice of Hope Africa in Zambia, and IRRS Italy. Send reception reports directly to the station you're listening to. Reports for KSDA and AWR sites should go to qsl at awr.org. Other correspondence, not reception reports, can be sent to wavescan at awr.org. I'm Jeff White at WRMI Shortwave in Okeechobee, Florida. Till next week, good listening, everyone.
This is the Adventist World Radio, and you are listening to the Voice of Hope. For more information, please feel free to write to us. Our email address is Bible at awr dot org, or you could also call us on WhatsApp at plus one two two four two 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 zero seven seven seven. 